Welcome, everybody. I'm Mary Caldor. I'm director of the Centre for the Study of Global Governance. And I'm really happy that we have, finally, Professor Michel Vivorka, whose work I don't think is known nearly enough in this country. And um, he's a director d'études at the École des Hautes Études de Sciences Sociales in Paris, and many other things which I won't go into. Um, he's, I think, very well known for his book, La Différence, but also, well, the book I just read, which I thought was incredibly useful, particularly his thinking about violence and conflict, uh, on violence. But anyway, today, and I think it's a really fascinating subject, he's going to talk to us about the crisis from a sociological perspective. I sit and go here. Which, yeah, whichever you prefer. Yeah. Sort of so, thank you, Mary. I would like to thank Mary Caldor. I would like to thank Judith Vachman. And I would like to thank Philippe Lane, the French would say, the British would say Philippe Lane, <laughs> for uh, organizing this, uh, this meeting tonight. And I would like to thank also Jeffrey Players because he is the person, the young, this kind of young researchers that do a lot intellectually and also practically, and he organized this meeting also. Exactly, I should have done that too. So <laughs> it's for me a pleasure and a honor to be here to meet some old friends, Michael Banton, Paul Gilroyce, and uh, to present you some ideas about sociology and the financial crisis. If you read newspapers, they say, crisis is finished. There is no more crisis. But if you visit some devastated areas in some industrial areas in many countries, if you listen to excluded people, people that live in popular neighborhood, you will understand that crisis is not finished. So my idea is not to discuss this precise issue, but just it's a kind of introductory remark. I just want to say that maybe today what happens is a kind of dissociation between the financial crisis and other aspects of the crisis. There was a moment where we had the feeling that everything was melting, that there was, it was a kind of total crisis. The French uh, anthropologist Marcel Mauss used to speak of fait social total, a total social fact. Maybe today things are a little bit more different. But what I want to do is not to deal with the crisis in general. I would like to deal with the question, what do sociologists have to say about crisis? If you go in any bookshop, and I visited the bookshop just in front of LSE a few minutes ago, if you go to any bookshop, you will see a lot of books about the crisis, have been written by economists. Some of them have been written also by journalists. I don't know if in English I can say essayists, not real social scientists. But you don't see any real book on the crisis that have been written by a sociologist. I don't mean that sociologists don't work, but they don't consider maybe crisis as a very important issue for them. Maybe also they need more time than economists or journalists or whatever in order to work on crisis. I don't know. 
But this is, for me, the point of departure. Of course, sometimes in the newspapers you will find some articles and opinions and so on written by sociologists, but not so many compared with economists. And this, I realized it very soon. One year ago in France, two months after Lehman's brother uh, failure, we had the first book written by Jacques Attali about the crisis. So two months after, and the title of the book was La crise et après, the crisis and after. It was in November or December <laughs> 2008. So, very quick. So, I started with this at a moment when I was thinking. There is this famous movie, Titanic. And in this movie, there are these people in the ballroom that are making business as usual, dancing, discussing, waiting for the money back uh, when they buy some beer or something like that. And the boat was sinking. And I think, don't we, sociologists, don't we behave as a little bit these people in the ballroom, dealing with our ordinary issues and subjects and small problems, sometimes not so small, but, and not seeing anything important. So this is why I wanted to, to deal with this issue. Then I thought, well, let us see. It, was not, it is not the first big crisis, even if there are huge differences with the 1929 event, crisis. But in 1920, there was also a big, big crisis. Let us see what sociologists or what social scientists did at that time. And uh, there is a very useful book which uh, has been edited by Craig Calhoun about uh, the history of American sociology. And in this book, there is a very, very good chapter written by Charles Kamik about sociologists and the Great Depression. This is the name of the crisis in the United States. So I read this article. What, what happened in America, which was at that time the country where you have the, most, the biggest number of sociologists, what happened with sociology and the crisis at that time? I will not speak too much about what is explained by Kamek, but what he says is totally, uh, how can I say, Desespering, the desperate. First of all, sociologists did not write almost anything. The only ones that wrote something when the crisis became obvious, the Great Depression, were rural sociologists. The only ones. Then, at a, at a moment when economists, uh, people working in, on law, journalists and so on were writing a lot. Then, at the end of the crisis, at the moment when Roosevelt arrived, a few articles and books started to appear, and Kamik says, very bad. He quotes in his article, I don't want to, to lose too much of my time, but he quotes, for instance, Burgess, that says awful things about American sociology at the time. And then the Great Depression was... Um, uh, the occasion for Roosevelt to launch the New Deal. And with the New Deal, sociologists also don't appear. I mean, Roosevelt asked to economists, to uh, lawyers, to a certain number of uh, people to help him in organizing, in thinking the New Deal. But a very limited number of sociologists appeared. 
So if you take this moment in the history, sociologists were not really mobilized by the crisis. Neither for the crisis, nor for the solutions to the crisis. So, of course, it's not a general theory, but maybe there is something for sociology. There is, some, there is a problem with maybe what we call a crisis. Uh, speaking of America, I just want to say something, just uh, at that moment. Usually, when people started to speak, not only in financial or economical economical terms, but on, see, on, uh, also in uh, political terms of the crisis today. Some people say, well, crisis starts with economy and the end is fascism and nazism and these uh, totalitarist regimes and so on. Yes, but not always. And the American case demonstrates that the crisis can end with a welfare state, with a new deal, with the recognition of trade unions and so on. So we should not have to Two very two quick uh, images of the consequences of a social or economic crisis. So, to finish with this first point, let me just say that I don't know but one book about the crisis in the 1929. There is maybe one book that we could quote. It's a book, I don't know the English title, which was written by Lazarsfeld and two other persons in a... Oh, uh, 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 with Jauda and uh, a third guy, I don't remember, I have his name somewhere in my notes, but it's a book about a small city, it's a very interesting thing. There is a small city in Austria which is called Marienthal, and this city was an industrial ci uh, city with a very strong social democrat party. Then came the crisis, and uh, Lazarsfeld and, and the leader of the, the local leader of the social democrat party, I think, and uh, Marie Jauda, went and worked in the city, and what they observed was demobilization, demoralization, apathy, Durkheimian people would say anomie, and, and, and so on. So the title in French is Les Chômeurs de Marienthal. I don't know which is the title. Unemployment in huh? Marienthal. Unemployment, Unemployment in Marienthal. In Marienthal. So it's the only <laughs> book which I know which is a sociological book on the crisis. It's a good book, a small book. So this is the first point, and just to add a, a last point on this introduction. I try to see in dictionaries, in um, encyclopedias of social science, this kind of books, I try to see what they say about the crisis. It's very interesting. It is not a category that you will find in all these books. Sometimes it will appear, sometimes not. And an extreme case, I will not give the name of the authors, there is a French dictionary of sociology, which has been written by two important professors, which is published by, a co it's a co-edition with two very important publishing companies. If you find crisis, they say crisis, the French word is crise, is coming from the Latin crisis. I have never studied Greek, but I know, and I, I suppose everybody knows here, that crisis comes from Greek, ancient Greek, and not from Latin. So how is it possible that people at that level writing on crisis say that it is a Latin word? It means they don't have any idea of what it means in Greek, and it is very important to know what it means in Greek. And so it means it's not an important category. So maybe there is a problem, a problem of concept or notion at least. We sociologists are, uh, maybe are not very able to deal with this notion of crisis. Maybe. 
So this was my introduction. Now I would like to tell you that if you read books and articles dealing with the financial crisis today, you will find two main positions, two main kinds of analysis. Of course, I simplify. You will, you will find as things a little bit more complex, but there are two main approaches to deal with this crisis. The dominant one, the first one, is a kind of narrative which is more, always, more, more or less always the same. Crisis is financial. Crisis started in one precise country, United States, and in one special field of collective life, finance. And it is all this description of, I will not get in this description, of subprimes, of, I don't know if it is as English word, titrization, type, uh, transformation of, of, uh, uh, of debts into titles. Securitization. Securitize. I mean, you, tr you, you take the debt of the people that buy a, a, a house and you transform it into a paper that you will sell to other banks, to other financial uh, institutions, and so on and so on. And one day, you are a, a normal citizen with a little bit, with some money, you go to your bank in London or in Paris or wherever, and you say, I have some money, what I want very sure and safe uh, investment. They say, buy this, it's a very good product, you will be, have no problem, and this product will be partly made of this money connected with the famous subprime. So the description is finance limited to a, a, a certain space, the finance, and in a country, America, and then suddenly the crisis starting in America becomes a world crisis, first of all, and the crisis which was at the beginning a pure financial crisis becomes a more general crisis, an economic crisis, a social crisis, and maybe a political crisis. And then the narrative says something like, okay, people, it will be difficult during some time, but after one year or two years, we shall recover, and we, business will start again. So we know that we, have, we will have a bad moment, but then it will start again. So this is more or less this kind of narrative that you will find in Jacques Attali's book, which I said a few minutes ago, but in many other books, with some differences from one book to another one. But this image of a crisis starting in one field and in one country and becoming global and economic, social, political. I don't say that this narrative is false, but I think that, I think that the second kind of approach is much more interesting. The second kind of approach, which is sometimes present in the literature, but not so much, says something like, things did not start two or three or four years ago. Things started in the 70s, and maybe in the early 70s. For instance, people say it started in October 1973 with a gas shock. It's just like this kind of debate. You, there is no, in fact, a very good uh, solution in this kind of debate because we, if we discuss, for instance, the end of communism in Eastern Europe, should we say 
November 9th, 1989, like we are saying now, or should we say, no, it was with Gorbachev? And some people say, no, it was with the end of Stalin. When, when Stalin died, it was the beginning of the decline. And so, so you can discuss, but 40, 35 years ago, 1973, 74, for me, it's in, at that moment that in some countries, at least, things started to change. In my country, France, there was a famous economist, his name was Jean Fourastier, who wrote a book to explain that France, during 30 years, have enjoyed development, full employment, uh, state uh, intervening a lot, and so on. And he called this book, uh, he spoke of les 30 glorieuses, the 30 glorious years after the Second World War, 1945-1975. So I understand that from a country to another one, things did not start exactly at the same moment, and things can be very different. But my idea is that this second approach deals with the, uh, the idea of long-term changes, and not only crisis. This is a very important point. In the mid-70s, many things changed. We could say, we should speak of a mutation much more than of a crisis. And that we should see that, for instance, it was at that moment that managers become not as important as in the past, and that was more and more important was the, relation, the relationship of the management with the owners of the companies. It was at that moment that uh, Fordism started to, not to, started to decline. It was at that moment also that new ideas developed. Most of you here are young, and maybe you have the feeling that ecological ideas, green ideas, are new. It is not true. All these green ideas that so many people like today started really to be important in the early 70s. The green movement, for instance, in, I, I just take the example of my country, but in my country in 1974, when we were having presidential elections, we had a candidate, Dumont, who was a green candidate. And to take a, a, a more global example, maybe some of you remember Ivan Illich, a man who wrote utopias, ecological utopias. You can like him or not, this is something else. But all these green ideas were appearing or developing at that moment. And at that moment, we had anti-nuclear movements, ecological movements, and so on. So this is why I think we should discuss the idea of mutation much more than the idea of crisis only. Things were created, there was some innovation, and not only destruction, crisis. Maybe uh, Mary could say something about that, but maybe the new wars that you are dealing with started at that time. Uh, so in, in many, many fields, and maybe changes in finance, credit, monetary activities and so on, started at that time. I, for instance, I remember how important Reagan and Thatcher have been in, in what brought, what led one day to uh, neoliberalism, which was at that time only liberalism, but it was the beginning of huge changes in finance. So, I don't want to, to discuss too much, but I think that this, if we accept this way of thinking, 
then we can consider that the crisis, the financial crisis, is just one aspect, one extraordinary aspect, but one aspect, or a more general process of changes that started in the early or mid-70s. And this is why we should also consider that there have been other crises between 73 or 74 and today. Uh, one year before the financial crisis, there was the, the food crisis. And uh, this very strange phenomenon with the prices of oil suddenly so high, and, we don't, oh, and not only oil, many metal, uh, aluminum and so on. So uh, lots of crises. People say that there is an ecological crisis. I don't know if it is true or not. I mean, the idea of crisis for ecology. But at least it did not start two or three years ago. And financial crisis, we had other financial crises. If you go to Japan, people will tell you that the, in the late uh, 80s or early 90s, there was a big financial crisis in Mexico and so on. So what I just want to say at that stage is that there are two approaches one is, on the short term, starting with the United States and with finance and going to global and world. And the other one is, no, things have changed. And, and, and it, for sociologists, I think it's much more interesting to deal with this second approach, which is that things have changed everywhere in the world and also in the organization of the world, in the geopolitical organization of the world, things started to change in the mid-70s, more or less, and this crisis is one expression of these changes. So if you accept this, you have the first part of my talk tonight. But I would like now to, to present some other ideas. And these other ideas are connected with the fact that maybe we sociologists, we could say something about the crisis. But in order to say something about the crisis, we need analytical tools, ideas. And I will just present, propose to you three ideas, three categories or three ways of being. The first idea is, of, is connected with something which is for me very important. I come from a country which is, as you know, Durkheimian. That is to say, that like very much to start with the idea of society as a whole. And there is a strong tradition, not only in my country, that considers that sociology is first of all dealing with the idea of society, with the idea of a, a, a system, with the idea of structures, with the idea of rules. This is the first way in order to make, some, to make sociology. But you can take another perspective. And the second perspective is to start not with this idea of society, but to start with the idea of individual, which is maybe more Weberian than Durkheimian. But, and today, and today, and this is connected with, it's not a paradox, this is connected from my point of view with globalization. Today, more and more social scientists understand or, or consider that they have to start not only with the idea of individual, but with the idea of subjectivity, personal subjectivity. In all fields in social science, you will find this idea, the strength of this idea in all 
in, in every, every field. For instance, I just give one, give one or two examples. For instance, if you have an interest in uh, Muslims, if you want to understand what is to be a Muslim today in a country like this one, for instance. If you make interviews with young Muslims, if you ask them, what, what does it mean being a Muslim? They will tell you something like, it's my choice. It's my personal choice. It's my personal decision. It's not because, it's not only, at least, because my parents, my grandparents, it's not only a question of reproduction of a system. It's, it's also a personal decision. If you have an interest for work now, if you are working in sociology of work, listen to what our colleagues say. They say something like, the problems at work are not only the system, capitalism, and so on. No, the problem is personal suffering, the stress. For instance, in my country today, we have big debates because in a, a big company, they discover that a lot of people are committing suicide. And people say, we must understand how individuals are committing uh, suicide and the stress, the, the changes in organizations from the point of view of these individuals. And so it's true in, in many, many areas, in many fields, people more and more try to work with this idea. And this is very important, I think, if we sociologists want to deal with the idea of crisis. If there is a crisis, is it only a crisis of the system, of abstract mechanisms, of structures, or doesn't have the crisis something to do with individuals, individual int interactions between individuals, subjectivity, new forms of culture that are part of this general transformation that I said uh, a few minutes uh, before. So my first point is to tell you, and this is not a paradox, it's more easy maybe to work on this crisis if we take the perspective, and I will say a few words just after that, if you take the perspective of individuals, subjects, action, and actors, and if you take the perspective of the system and its function, function. Which leads me to my second idea. My second idea is connected with uh, the fact that I have been uh, trained by uh, Alain Touraine. He was my professor. And when, the start, when I started to, to, to deal with this problem of crisis, I remembered a book that he wrote in the mid-70s. The title was something like... Uh, there was, there was a word crisis in the title, I don't remember exactly the title, but there was a word crisis in the title. But also at that time I was a student following his seminar, and I remember very well a very important idea, a key idea. He was opposing crisis and conflict. And this is maybe the more important thing I want to tell you. He was more or less explaining that the more you have social actors relations between actors and social, and if you have collective actors, it's because you have individuals that join collective organizations, collective meanings, and so on. So the more you start from this idea of action and of this, with this idea of conflict and with this idea of relationship, the less you will have space for crisis. Crisis, I exaggerate a little bit, 
is the contrary of conflict. If you consider that conflict means relationship. Because if you have a relationship, you can discuss, you can negotiate, you can try to modify the situation uh, through some uh, talks. Crisis, no. Crisis, you react to a situation. So if you start from the behaviors of actors, if you consider the two possibilities, crisis or conflict, maybe you will have uh, the beginning of a very new explanation of the crisis today. And I would like to insist a little bit. In order to be, more, to be clear, I will give you one example, because I'm sure that this example could work here in this country too. In France, in many small or big cities, in popular neighborhoods, we have what we call sometimes urban violence. Okay, young people, after, in general, it's after an incident when a young guy has been killed by the police or something like that, or even if it is not true, they believe that a young guy has been killed by the police in these popular neighborhoods, riots. In some situations, in some situations, local actors say, violence, we don't accept this. We shall transform the demands of these young boys, which are not only a problem of one of their friends have been killed by the police, we shall transform their demands into debate and conflict. We shall create associations, NGOs, in order to transform the crisis into a conflict and in order to create a relationship, a conflictual relationship between the young people in the popular neighborhood and the local authorities, the political leaders, the mayor of the city, for instance. That is to say, this is this kind of example that I wanted to, to present to you, that is to say, you have less crisis, less violence, less reaction to the situation because you have a possibility to create the conflict, which means also exchange, debate, pressure, institutionalization of the problems, debate, public debate, this kind of thing. So the idea that is that at various levels this crisis today has something to do with not enough conflicts in our societies or at the world level because like Mary I believe that we must think at the world level which means and this is very important which means that if we want to understand this crisis we must also consider that if we were having more social cultural political actors able to conflictualize social issues, there would be less crisis. And it is very important to see that today, in our countries at least, we lost two big conflicts. The first is the social conflict between the working class movement and the masters of industry. I don't say that this conflict totally disappeared. But today, trade unions are not so important. I don't know what is the situation in this country. In my country, today, it's only 7 or 8% of the workers that belong to a trade union. It's not so much. And 
worse, the people that belong to a trade union in my country, most of them are working for the state, civil servants, uh, education, and so on. Not in factories, and not in small factories. Maybe the decline of this, what was called a class conflict, we are in the building where Darendorf was uh, the professor, so the, the end or the decline of this class conflict maybe is part of this problem of crisis. But it is not only the old conflict which is at stake. The second conflict which disappeared, and which disappeared totally, was the so-called Cold War. The Cold War was, at the world level, a conflict. It was not a war, even if we used to call it a war. And maybe today, if the feeling that there is such a strong crisis exists, it's maybe also because we lost this conflictual opposition between two blocks. And third part of this idea is not only these two old conflicts that decline or disappear, the collapse of communism, the decline of social democracy on the one hand, the end of the Cold War on the, uh, on the other hand, it is also the fact that the new conflicts that started to appear in the early 70s, these new conflicts are weakened have been weakening and they have many difficulties to, to develop. In the, early, in the mid 70s, many people among social scientists were believing that we were finishing with industrial society, entering in a new era where new conflicts and new social movements were going to appear, which means anti-nuclear movements, ecological movements, women's movements, student movements, this kind of new... So, and what happened? These movements were appearing in the 70s, in the 80s, but then, I will not say that it all declined, but then during the 80s and the 90s, they had a lot of difficulties to develop. And, uh, I should be a little bit more precise, and the only important movement of that kind that exists today is the Alter Global Movement, which is for me, a very important movement because it's not only a social or a cultural movement, it's, it's a world movement. This does not mean that all conflicts disappear. But what happens that is that in spite of social or socio-economic actors, what appeared more and more important were what we could call identity movements. And these identity movements are not as easily as social movements able to participate in conflicts. It's more difficult to conflictualize culture than to conflictualize social relationship. Because when you conflictualize culture or when you conflictualize religion, it very quickly becomes something else than conflict. It very quickly becomes, I will not speak like Huntington, clash of civilization, but at least it may lead to these new wars, to, uh, to uh, all these problems much more than to multiculturalism, which is conflictualization. So I don't have time to, to be more precise, because I just want you to understand this idea. You can agree or not, this is this idea, which is 
the problem of crisis, if you don't speak only in terms of finance, the problems of crisis is maybe connected with the idea of a deficit or difficulties in conflictualization. This was my main idea. But I would like to introduce a last idea a last, uh, as a sociologist. The last idea is coming from another French sociologist. I am not uh, obsessed by my uh, identity, even if my president wants her friends to discuss only national identity. Maybe I've seen that in, in your newspapers. But it's not at all my obsession. But I just want to say that the, where do my ideas come from? There is another old French sociologist who has written also very interesting, interesting things, things about the crisis in the mid-70s. It is Edgar Morin. Some of you may know his name. He published an article. I don't remember the title of the article, but the idea was we should develop a new science which we could call chrysiology. In French, chrysiology. Edgar Morin. And it's a very interesting idea. And he says, Christology should deal with the crisis, not only as problems of a system, problem of but, uh, dis dysfunctioning and, and all these classical ideas, but with two other ideas. Crisis, he says, means on the one hand, revelation, revelation, reveal something, and on the other hand, what he calls effectuation, poss new possibilities. And these are two very interesting ideas. The first one, what does it mean? It means that, I am following Edgar Morin, it means that when you have a crisis, maybe you will see things better than when you don't have a crisis. Which is not an obvious idea. You could say the contrary. You could say when you have a crisis, you don't see anything because you are obsessed by all the problems. No, he says, with a crisis, you will see better. And this is very interesting because, uh, for instance, today, maybe the finance will start again. I don't know. Because, as you know, there are many discussions. Is it U, V, or W? That is to say, are we, are, uh, did the crisis start, become strong, and then business will start again? Is it like a V, say, suddenly down, and then it starts again? Or is it W? It starts. We go out of the crisis, we go down to a new moment in the crisis, but then we finish. So, the question is, don't we think that can even what, whatever happens, we know today that the ideology that was going with the finance during 20 years, the neoliberalism, neoliberal ideas, nobody will defend them now. Even if some people will like them and live on this uh, kind of ideology, the idea of neoliberalism is not at all today acceptable. So even if the crisis leads to business as usual for finance, even if it is like that, we shall look at finance. We shall look at this world, at, at this world of finance differently. And maybe we could say that we shall look at some phenomenon differently. For instance, I said ecological ideas, the green ideas today are much more acceptable in the public debate than one year or two years before. And this is maybe connected with the crisis. So the first point is that crisis 
reveals things, ideas, processes, changes that maybe we could not see or understand before the crisis. This is the first idea of Edgar Morin. And the second idea is that crisis could mean also innovation, creation, creativity. So Morin says, of course, crisis does not mean, first of all, does not mean this. First of all, crisis means, first of all, des destruction, problems, and so on. But it can also lead to new processes, new, some changes, some, some creativity. And I was reading this again, this article by Edgar Morin recently, and I was thinking to a precise case, which is the case of General Motors. And I was thinking, General Motors is in a big crisis. I mean, suppressing I don't know how many jobs and so on. What are the two main ways to go out of this crisis for a big company like General Motors? The first way is to say, the state should give us a lot of money so that we can st uh, save jobs and build cars and cars and cars. And I don't know the English word, afford four-wheel drives? four-wheel. And that we should build, again, still, four-wheel dri four drive cars like in the past. And we save jobs. So this is the first way to finish with the crisis for a big company like General Motors. But the second way to go out to finish with the crisis is totally different. It is we are, of course, trying to save jobs, but much more important, we are trying to enter in a new era, to think differently cars, mobility, transportation, public transportation, and so on. And this is what you can call the green uh, growth and this kind of idea. So it's totally different. The problem is that usually people have to choose. Do you prefer to save jobs, like they are, or do you prefer to enter in a green era? Maybe we should think differently. But what is interesting is that the, there is nowadays a real strong debate on what we should do with new ideas in order to go out of this crisis. I was in this famous li library just in front of, your, uh, of LSE. The sociological department is not so new. Many books have been published many years ago. But if you visit the ecological, environmental, and so on, uh, lots of books, lots of books. It's very interesting, which means that maybe the crisis is the moment where there is a kind of acceleration of the sensibility, of the capacity of the people to, to find or to be interested by these ideas that are not totally new, but rather new. And this is the second idea that comes from Morin. Crisis can be the moment where uh, new ideas, new initiatives, new ways of thinking, new paradigms could develop. So this is what I wanted to present to you today. If I summarize, I started with the idea that in the past sociologists did not say so much about the crisis, that today they don't say so much about the crisis as social scientists, but that we have a lot to do if we are interested in action, in actors, in the idea that conflict could be the contrary, so maybe also the solution of the crisis, 
and in the idea that a crisis is not only a bad moment, but also a moment where, where we can see things that we did not want or that we could not see, and where we can maybe try to imagine not only the past, but also another uh, future. So I thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that, and I can already see some questions. I'm going to abuse my position by asking a first question, because I think that's very stimulating, and I was thinking about your argument and how to relate the, la the three ideas. And what struck me was that actually the reason that ecology and all of these things are so popular at the moment doesn't have anything to do with the financial crisis. It's all our concerns about climate change and so on. And maybe the problem is not the lack of conflict, but the fact that the wrong conflicts are institutionalized. So the worker, the left-right conflict was institutionalized in the dominant political parties and in the Cold War, but subterraneanly there was a conflict going on about green issues that wasn't expressed in the institutions and it, the crisis is the result of this gap. How does that sound as a... <laughs> well, it was not only subterranean, the conflict. Oh, yeah. And what was very important, I met some field work. I'm sorry, I cannot see my friends and colleagues here. Uh, I should stand maybe <laughs> to see everybody. And so, what is important is to see that during the 70s and the 80s, when these movements, these ideas had some importance, there was a, 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 a clash between ecological movement, environmentalist, and so on, and the working class movement. Mm -hmm. And this is not totally finished. I met fieldwork, I remember meetings between leaders of the French CGT, the trade union, the main trade union, and ecological activists. It was full of tension, of hatred, because the trade unionists were saying something like, we are defending the workers, and the workers want to have money in order to buy cars and in order to consume, and if you don't let us have money for this, it means that you are the petit bourgeois, selfish people that have money enough in order to, to defend their interests. So it was very tense. So it's only, not only, but I fully agree, we have been living in the 70s, 80s, the, a moment when the institutionalization of the working class movement, in spite of helping new social movements, new ideas to appear, was much more an obstacle. In my country, I'm sorry to give these examples, but in my country there, there was only one trade union, la CFDT, that tried, that tried to say something like, our job is to protect workers, but we can use our force, our capacity of action, in order to help these new actors, women, ecological movements, in order to help them to exist. But they did not do it so strongly, it did not do it so much. But to add, today we have the same kind of discussion if you take, for instance, the food crisis. Some people say we should, uh, 
we should not eat any more uh, meat because we need much more corn if we want to eat meat than if we eat directly corn. It's, it's, uh, I don't know exactly, I don't remember the figures, but you need ten more, more or less 10 more corn if you want to eat meat than if you accept to eat directly corn. So, if you say we should finish with, with this, people in China will tell you, middle, the new mid, middle class in China will say, just a second, we have been eating rice until recently, no, we want to have some chicken and we want to uh, have some milk and we have some dairy products and so on. And you, because you are rich, you don't want us to, to have these products. So it's, it's still in the air. But what I, the example which I gave of General Motors, we can imagine other sectors where new ideas, for instance, building houses. Many people say we should build houses in a time of crisis. But you can build houses with classical concepts. You can build new cities with totally new ideas, considering mobility, energy. So this is, there is still a a an opposition between the two. Great. Okay. I wanted to make a comment and a question. The comment was motivated by this new science of crisiology, as revelation and um, uh, effectation. effectuation. Um, this sort of double sense of the word, and it seems to me that um, I think it's I think his name is Ron Emanuel, the uh, the chief of staff of Obama, who said, "Well, we should never miss the opportunity that a good crisis provides us." But, I mean, if we also go back to, you talked about etymology of crisis and the Greek etymology. Of course, if you go back to Chinese, um, a crisis is made up of two characters, one of which means uh, danger and the other of which means opportunity. And that's something which one also wants to look at. That's the observation. The question is, it struck me that at a certain time, although you, 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 you made a, a distinction between... Um, analyses built upon structures and analyses built upon individuals and you refer to the Durkheim and the Weber that you actually in the end it seemed to me rather went back to Durkheim because um, you talked about subjectivity and then you talked about suicide which is typically Durkheim and then when you talked about um, the problem well, you, you, you distinguish between um, conflict and crisis you rather seem to suggest that crisis was some sort of anomic state, and that also seems to be classically Durkheim. So um, how much of this have we seen sort of before, and how much maybe the ancient Chinese realized long before even anybody else? It's not really a question, but... Uh, uh, well, first of all, Edgar Morin, in, in his article... Goes, goes to the etymology of the word crisis. And he says, I, I never studied Greek personally, so I, what I'm going to say is what I read from Morin. He says that the word crisis in Greece, in ancient Greek, ancient Greece, has, is connected with, medic, when, with medicine. It's a medical word, and it means not the problem, but the moment when you are discovering the solution of the problem. And this is very important. And this is why he proposed, I think, this idea of Christology. So this, this is for the word, uh, the etymology. So I don't go to China, I go to Morin, and the ancient Greek, and the etymology of the word, 
And as you know, maybe I'm not sure, but I think that the, the idea of criticism is connected with this etymology, but I'm not sure, so we must be very careful with, with etymology, but it's always useful to go in dictionary in order to see where do the words that we use are coming from. Now, of course, I, I, I don't forget that Durkheim is directly connected with suicide. But what is the explanation of suicide by, Edgar, by uh, Emil Durkheim? The idea is that suicide is not only or mainly a psychological phenomenon. That society, suicide is not only a personal decision out of any social uh, uh, image. If people commit suicide, this has something to do with the state of the society. It has something to do, and yeah, as you know, there are different kinds of suicide, but in order to explain suicide, it starts from society. It does not start from the individual. But, of course, I don't know any sociologists that say, I will speak only of individuals and never speak of society. I spoke of point of departure for the analysis. And you can put the emphasis on the individual or you can put the emphasis on the society, to say it like that. The only sociologist that I know who says society does not exist anymore is Alain Touré. Which I, he says society does not exist, but when he says that, it's the idea that society is something like which corresponds so much to a social body which is connected with the idea of a nation and with the idea of a state altogether. And it is true that when we say la société in France, it's not so far from the nation and not so far from the, the idea of a state. So these are my first reactions to your uh, comment. At Robert Wade. Hello, Robert Wade. Um, I wonder if you could try and connect up the two approaches that you distinguished. One of them, uh, the, that is the approach, the two approaches to this current crisis in social science. One of them, as you said, focuses in on proximate, near, close, specific causes. And the other one focuses on more distant causes, the social mutations, as you described them. So the question is, um, what do you think are the most important um, mutations, um, perhaps those connected with your description of the process of conflict um, over the last few decades, what are the most important um, mutations that uh, you would use to explain the build-up of financial fragility in the world over the past uh, decade or so, which has now tipped into this current crisis? I think I would, I would consider at least two different kind of issues. On the one hand, but I am not an expert, I would consider the huge changes in our general conception of the world and in the world. That is to say, in the 70s and in the 80s, the, we were in what Ulrich Beck called nation, methodo, um, methodological nationalism. That is to say, we were dealing with nation states and with international relations, and we were not able to imagine the world like it is today with China, Brazil, uh, and so on, and with global phenomena. So, 
But this is not, this would not be for me the main answer. The main answer to your question is in economy and in social life. Why do people in America wanted to buy houses, but not only houses, in this way, without, uh, what was this pressure for money, and I, for a consumption? And I think that this has something to do with the end of Fordism and Taylorism. Ford used to say something like, uh, I want to, be, to pay my workers a lot so that they can buy cars, my cars. In order to sell my cars, I must pay my workers a lot. This was more or less the idea of Fordism. And I think that this, is, this, finished, this was finishing or declining in the 70s or the 80s, and, we, and that America has been entering a new era where the access to consumption was not anymore connected with the, the income due to work. So this kind of changes. And this kind of changes have been uh, connected with changes in the way work was conceived, and also these kinds of uh, changes were connected with uh, changes, as I said, in the management and in the power of managers, and in the relationship between managers and uh, owners of companies. Uh, I remember, he was in this building also, discussing with Richard Sennett, giving some figures, uh, explaining that uh, for a, uh, I don't remember the English, I don't remember the English the, the time for money to be back for some people that invest in companies is shorter and shorter and shorter. There is this pressure, and as, and we all know these cases where companies uh, are uh, firing people, and the more they fire people, the higher they are at the stock exchange. This kind of of changes, and all this started in the late 70s, 80s. So my, my answer to your question is changes in the general economy, in the organization, in the management, in the relationship between owners and, um, and uh, organizers of the work. Uh, these kind of things I, will, I would deal with, and I would maybe also deal with changes in the um, in the idea of what we have been discussing, collective action, the working class movement, and the beginning of the decline of these actors. It's, institutional, it's institutionalization stronger and stronger, which was not able to take into account new values, new desires, new, new models. So this would be the kind of answers I would bring. But I think that we can articulate the two approaches. That is to say, we can say yes, there was a kind of exacerbation of these processes that led to Lehman Brothers and so on, but these processes, these financial processes, are maybe paradigmatic of all these changes that started in the 70s. This could be the answer also. I hope I am clear enough. Yeah, great. You wanted to go. I can't see people over there. I don't know if that, there was a question. Okay. But we'll go at the moment. We're okay. We can go one by one. Um, it was really interesting to hear your, sorry, Axel Landon, by the way. It was interesting to hear you uh, rooting 
the crisis, uh, the beginnings of it in the 1970s and obviously uh, between the Second World War and the 1970s the, uh, the political consensus was you know, to have uh, uh, quite a, put a high value on society uh, and then obviously we saw what became a kind of rampant individualism which went along with the uh, with, uh, Reaganomics and all that kind of thing after that. Um, but now, as you said, uh, neoliberalism is, is seen as kind of ideologically unsavoury. Do you expect to see, as a result of that, uh, stronger communities um, in, in, in the coming years and, and, and more of an emphasis on community and society relations, social relations? It's difficult to explain the past, so it's very difficult to explain the future or to imagine the future. What I think is that these problems could lead to two opposite directions. On the one hand, communities, identities, but identities unable to be part of bigger entities, unable to participate in multiculturalist debates, for instance, and going much more on radicalization, rupture, or closing. Not necessarily violence, but closing, which is the contrary of individualism. People choosing as individuals to participate in communities where they shall not be able to be individuals anymore. So this could be one tendency. And the second tendency would be more conflict. That is to say, including cultural identities, including this phenomenon being transformed into capacity of debating, of creating political tensions, but always on, with relationships between actors. So I think that the two tendencies are possible and it will depend maybe also on countries. In some countries you could have much more communities closed or closing, and in other countries you could have much more uh, conflictualization, new actors, new conflicts, new debates. You can have both and the problem, but this is, and this is part of the problem. The problem is maybe the relationship with these tendencies, which are under the political level, the relationship with the political level. And here, but I did not have time to discuss this, to introduce this, this issue. I think that one huge problem in Europe, which is not the same in other parts of the world, is that today in Europe, the left has big difficulties and is not able to be the place where social and cultural conflicts can be, or actors can be um, Transformed, their ideas, their demands can be transformed in political action. The left today is weak, and every, in all Europe, in all Europe, people say the left has no leadership, but also the left has no ideology, no new ideas. Even in this country, which invented, and in this place, Giddens, which invented the third way, the third way it was 15 years ago. Today, or Clinton, and so, but today, today. Uh, we see nowhere in Europe political left able to, to do something with all these issues that I've been describing. And this is connected with your question. If you don't have at the political level actors that are able to say, I am taking seriously these demands 
these conflictual demands that come from cultural minorities, from ecological movement, from humanitarian uh, NGOs, and so if I take them as a political, uh, as political claims, if you don't have this, it does not help, and it it could be a problem. So my, and this is very European, because if you go to Latin America, it would be very different. You will have a lot of left solutions in Latin America. So it's, and even America, Obama, whatever you may say about him, it's left in the American system. So, but in Europe, we are, how do you say, orphan? Uh, orphaned. We are orphaned because we lost communism and we are losing social democracy. So we don't have ideas for a strong left that would be able to make uh, all these demands going towards conflicts more than towards communities. It would create conditions. I don't. I, I hate determinism, so I will not say this is the answer. But it would create solutions that go rather on in one direction rather than in another one. But there is no determinism in what we are discussing. There's a question there. Yes, uh, Florence Deloche Godes, visiting fellow at the European Institute. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you for your very stimulating presentation. And I would like to come back to the idea of Edgar Morin, um, of the crisis as a source of innovation. Because it reminds me of a book of Anna Arendt called, in French, La crise de la culture, uh, where she writes that uh, the crisis is an opportunity to see things differently, to think of different solutions and that the crisis is really catastrophic if you miss this opportunity. And so you started your presentation by saying that many people said the crisis is over, the city is recovering. So I would like to know if you see the risk of missing this opportunity. And I'm asking this question because I work on European issues and it strikes me that we missed an opportunity after the no votes of the French and the Dutch to rethink the way of uh, uh, elaborating fundamental texts for the EU. Oh, I'm so glad, because I absolutely will follow what you say. Uh, I, 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 I have the feeling, I have the feeling that business will start as usual, will mm -hmm. start again as usual. This is for me the, the main tendency, that is to say, we, I have the feeling that, of course, as, we have been discussing some ideas and so on, it's not totally negative. But I have the feeling that it is not really a moment when some actors are able to deal with new ideas, creativity and so on. Uh, maybe the French example is extreme and it, so it's not a good example. But in my country, we have a lot of people that say that uh, green growth, uh, ecological ideas are very important. And that, Of course, this is discourse, but in the real life, and in the political life, this is not what is going to, to develop. And so uh, I try not to be too pessimistic, but yes, I have this feeling that, uh, that General Motors will still produce four-wheel drive uh, cars. And, you know, the, well, I have the feeling that people that are dealing with urban uh, planning and so on are not trying to 
propose really seriously new conceptions of the city, new conceptions of transportation in, in different fields. I, have, I am afraid that we miss these uh, opportunities. But you are right to quote Anna Arendt, but we could quote many other authors. I remember uh, Gramsci has written some sentences also saying what you said. I mean, a certain number of authors say something about the crisis because they know the Greek uh, meaning of the world. There's someone here. Thank you. Um, I did not really want to come back to the Greek origin of the crisis. It's also long ago that I learned Greek once, but um, when I hear you talking like this, I think that we perhaps should think about the original word, which also means that crisis is the changing point. Whenever the change started to to start, if you want to uh, say it like that, in the 70s or the 90s. But whether we really have a crisis or what you call the mutuation, I think is the question right now. And this is what sociologists should perhaps also an analyze. Do we really have a crisis, which means really a point of change, or do we just have an adoption, a mutuation, etc.? Thank you. The problem is that we shall have the answer to your question not today. We have to wait maybe 10 or 20 or 50 years. It's the first problem. And maybe the second problem is that maybe uh, things need more time than what we believe in order to really change. Um, I will give my personal example as a researcher. In the 70s, I was working with Alain Touraine, and he, pro he proposed to me to work with him with uh, idea that we were at the end of the industrial society and at the beginning of post-industrial societies and that we are changing. It was not a crisis, but we were shifting from a, a kind of society towards another kind of societies. And the idea was this will be done very quickly. The old society will go out of the room by this door and the new society will come by this door at the same time. It was in the mid-70s. Maybe we need uh, 50 years to have this. Maybe it will take much more time. So maybe the crisis is a, it's a moment, but maybe if you follow my idea of a, a general process, maybe within 10 or 20 or 50 years we shall have really passed from one era to another era. So there is also in, in this discussion about the crisis the idea that there is a precise moment where things really change. Maybe it is not like that. And maybe it is not like that in general when we deal with societies and so on. Maybe also it is not like that when we deal with individuals. And I would like to make a, a comment on this. I have been working on terrorism during many years and I made a lot of interviews with former terrorists. The idea that you can have, if you don't know how these people are, are and, and how they behave, the idea is that maybe there is a moment, a crisis, when they became terrorists, a specific moment. I can tell you, I made lots of interviews. This is not like that. There is not a moment when people become terrorists. Usually, it's a trajectory, it's a process, it's a, a certain number of steps, it's, it's of transformation, and somebody who was not a terrorist in, the, in 1972 is a terrorist in 1975. But you cannot say there is a precise, strong moment of transformation. So, this is just to tell you, 
the idea of a, of a crisis as a precise moment, maybe we should be very careful with it. Of course, nowadays, a certain number of people are losing their job, are, are, are having their life totally destroyed and changing, maybe. So it is true that it is very important. But my idea is that maybe long-term analysis is more useful in order to understand what is at stake than too short-term analysis. I hope I am answering to your remark. Yeah. Hello. Um, I was, I'm kind of interested in observing present uh, trends. And I was thinking when you're talking about this, if you could say that the crisis comes out of a lack of, of conflict in the past, in a sense, is, and uh, if you look forward, the, the kind of uh, crisis that we have now, if that could potentially sort of lead to, to conflicts, uh, going forward in the future, and you could say we could have some desirable conflicts, like environmentalism, for instance, having a rise, and you could have some undesirable uh, conflicts. And uh, I was thinking specifically, I mean, I know he mentioned some, some of this stuff uh, as well, but I was thinking about Islamophobia as one of these rising crises. And, but, but, uh, and, uh, but in particular, I was thinking about this rise of, and I see this quite a lot, even among educated people, uh, conspiracy theories, um, cons conspiracy theories, among people on the right and people on the left, to try to explain this, what's going on. And uh, I saw this in, also when I was in the G20 riots. You had people from the right protesting against the G20 and people on the left, and they both had this in common, this conspiracy theory. There is something going on behind, you know. And uh, just as a parallel to, to, you know, after the Second World War, there was also quite a lot of this cons conspiracy theory. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I understood totally what you what you wanted to say, but uh, let me tell you, uh, xenophobia, racism, first of all, this kind of uh, and the idea of conspiracy, which is connected with this, it is the contrary of conflict. It is speaking of social realities with the idea not of a relation, a conflictual relation, but with the idea that there are somewhere. Sub, sub, secret, uh, under, uh, underground, uh, mysterious uh, actors that are organizing the world. And the more you demonstrate that these actors don't exist or don't do what they are supposed to do, the more people say, oh, that's the strength of evil, never to be, that you cannot recognize it. This, the, the, the more difficult you can demonstrate that it exists, the, the, the more obvious it is that it exists. I, I, I hope I am clear. So, what I want to tell you, it is true that you always have uh, goat, uh, the book is here, goat, um, scapegoats, yet you have, and you have uh, Freemasons, and you have Jews, and you have, I don't know, whatever category, but this is the contrary of, of being able to recognize the real nature of problems. And it is the contrary of transforming problems into debates and into conflicts. So the more you speak in terms of conspiracy, I think the more you are accepting to be in the crisis, when there is a crisis. Because con conspiracy 
will lead you to uh, violence, to racism, and I mean this idea of conspiracy. And this is why this is why I am far personally far from some sociology that is explaining things with CID, this kind of ideas, because some sociologists explain you that there are uh, abstract mechanisms, not, of course, I don't know any sociologists that will explain things by conspiracy, but we have some sociologists that spend their time only in denouncing and soupçon, I don't know the English word, le soupçon, um, suspicion, suspicion. There is a lot of sociology like this. It is not my kind of sociology, I must also say. Thank you. She's just going to bring it to you. Yes, you've already um, implicitly given the answer to my question, but I'm just wondering um, whether the fact that, as you were, in my eyes, rightly saying that so far there hasn't been that many sociological contributions to the crisis um, is linked to the fact that you were saying at the very beginning that there's some sort of a dissociation between the financial crisis and the, let's say, the social crisis, which is only happening in some sort of a time lag. So this impact on the, on the social structure, as to speak, so is only happening maybe in the, in the years to come. So we, as you were saying, as sociologists, just don't know yet whether it's an actual crisis, as to speak so. Well, before the, before the so-called crisis, before the financial crisis, my idea, which was not a very serious idea, but uh, my general idea, like an ordinary citizen, was that there was a total dissociation between the world of finance and the world of real economy. This was my idea, like many people, and if you were reading newspapers, this is what you could read. There is finance, money is totally autonomous and free, there is no borders and so on, and, and there is real economy, and the two are totally two different words. Then came the crisis, and I, I was thinking, if there is such a dissociation, then when the finance has problems, this should not lead to unemployment, uh, problems of uh, income, and so I mean, if there is a dissociation, there is a dissociation. But what I was understanding every day was no, it is not a dissociation. There is a kind of crazy articulation of the real economy and finance. So this was my second image. But then today, when I read the newspapers, as I said, again, they tell me finance, the city is okay, huh? it's okay, and that's the real people still suffer and will suffer a lot. So. I don't have a, uh, a solid answer to your uh, remark or to your question. My idea is that, and this could be a, a task for sociologists, how do finance, so this world of money, and a real economy and real society are articulated? What is at stake between these two universes that makes them, at certain moment, apparently without any relationship, and at other moment, very strongly articulated. So this could be 
a task for us, making research. What is also very surprising is that there are not so many, there are some research, but not so many re research on these kind of uh, issues. And uh, in my country, but I, I think it's an excessive case, in my country, the sociologists that are asked to explain something about finance, we don't have so many, and the few that speak about the rich people are people that explain, are sociologists that explain how rich people live. They like, uh, I don't know, castles and uh, good life and, and whatever. Which is not the, the question. So I think that there is a problem for sociology. We don't study so much these issues. Uh, it's much more for economists. This is what, what we consider. I think we're coming to the end. I wanted to say a last point, which relates to all of this discussion, really, that maybe the way to put it is that the conflict's the wrong conflict. I mean, there's a knee-jerk idea that the alternative to neoliberalism is Keynesianism. And that's, in a way, what the American solution is. What the, but it isn't really a solution. And actually, they're two sides of the same coin, the nation-state versus the market. And in fact, that's the problem, that somehow the wrong conflict has dominated the crisis, and that's why we're not going to take this opportunity and why it's going to be catastrophic. And the real issue has something to do, as you say, with the debates in the 1970s, the discovery of individualism, but two very different sorts of individualism, the sort of selfish individualism of neoliberalism and the idea of moral autonomy somehow associated with the new social movements. And that's where the new answer has to come from, I think, not from the Keynesian answer. And that somehow has got blocked. I fully agree. I think that social scientists should permanently, should permanently try not to be obsessed by the state. And of course the state exists, the nation state exists, the nation exists, of course. But the more we consider, on the one hand, globalization, mm. or global phenomena, and not only global phenomena in economy, but more generally, because global, religion is global, culture can be global, communication and so on. So globalization on the one hand, and, and for me, it is, it is not a paradox, at the other extreme uh, point of the analysis, individualism seen from the point of view of personal subjectivity, that is to say, capacity of individuals to participate in the definition of their own life. To say it like <coughs> that. And so, I think that the best answers, this is why I know that you are a strong interest for the idea of cosmopolitanism, which is not for the French such a good word, because in France, cosmopolitanism is connected with some debates which are not so... Yeah, uh, it has a problem. Uh, the, the world <laughs> is not... But the idea of the indiv... But we need, we need more conflict at another scale than the scale of the nation-state or within another framework of the nation. And we must really take seriously into account this idea that this new conflict that we need, they have something to do with globalization and they must and they have something to do with individual as subjects as, uh, um, 
have, uh, persons that should have rights and human rights and so on. So this, I think we agree totally on this idea that the framework of the nation state is not the good framework if we want to think about these, uh, these issues. I fully agree. Well, thank you very, very much. That was really stimulating. I only wish there'd been more people to hear this because it's very important. We are, have endless discussions on the financial crisis here at the LSE, which are like exactly what you're criticizing. And uh, we really need to promote the alternative. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you.